Today we are continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, through chapter 11, verse 1. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? because of that for which I give thanks. So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, or to Greeks, or to the Church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Community. My name is Nate Himes, one of the elders of this church, and I'm excited to share this word with you. For a few months, we've been working our way through Paul's first recorded letter to the Corinthians. The apostle has been writing to this young church in the largely pagan city of Corinth. Today's passage is a culmination of Paul's comments and instructions regarding the worship of idols, eating food that has been offered to idols how to navigate these situations we find ourselves in when living in a non-Christian setting, how do we love each other well in these things. In the previous chapters, Paul answered the Corinthian Christians' question about whether they were permitted to eat food that had been purchased in the local meat market but had previously been offered or sacrificed to idols. Paul's answer was yes, they could purchase and eat that meat, provided it was going to lead wasn't going to lead another person to sin. He returns to that at the end of our passage today when he wraps up this topic. But here at the start, Paul brings up a different issue. He's talking about active participation in a pagan sacrifice feast itself. And his answer 
is clearly no. They should not participate in that. Now I want to address from the start why this passage matters to us at all. As Tyler mentioned last week, we don't really have overt pagan sacrificial feasts going on in our town, at least not typically. You're not going to hear about it at your school, see it advertised in the Daily Illini, News Gazette. It's not going to be listed in Chambana Mom's community calendar, right? But you are going to encounter opportunities and invitations all the time in the world and the culture in which we live to join in and participate in many things that do not honor or glorify God. Things that might hinder the faith of others. Things that might cause you to walk away from your faith. Sometimes these things will be really clear. And sometimes they're going to be less obvious. Fall in like a gray area. But what you decide to do is critically important for your faith. It's critically important for the faith of others. And it's critically important to God. Who is jealous for our worship. So here are just a few examples that we might face as Christians um, in which we might struggle to know how to respond. I'm not going to like tell you specifically what you should do in these situations, so don't get your hopes up. But we are going to give some principles for it. But here's some situations. Should I attend a wedding ceremony for a coworker who has been living with her boyfriend and isn't a believer? Should I attend the wedding ceremony of a relative who is marrying someone of the same sex? What if they are Christian? What if they aren't? Should I accept a job offer at a company that has publicly and strategically aligned itself, its goals, its strategies, its mission with something that is unkind or unjust? What about joining civic or political organizations and attending their meetings and rallies? Can I participate in a book club or a movie club with neighbors that sometimes includes reading books that glorify sin? Young people in the room, should you be part of certain clubs at your school that dishonor God? Some of these might seem pretty clear to you personally, but I bet if you were to ask five people around you today, you would get a whole bunch of different responses because it's not always clear. And there's a lot of nuance. And a lot of that has to, um, goes into what's going on in your heart and the hearts of the people around and what the situation involves. So the passage we're looking at today gives us some helpful principles as we consider scenarios like these. This single passage doesn't contain every biblical principle for making these kinds of decisions, which is why we need to submit ourselves to the entire authority of Scripture, why we preach through entire books of the Bible We study the entire counsel of the Lord. But here, I think there are at least six principles that we can look at and gain from. Again, it's important because what we decide to participate in matters deeply. It says something to God. It says something to the world about our heart, what we value, what we worship, what holds our allegiance, what we find worthy above all other things. What you decide to participate in unites you with the values of the other participants or worshipers and can unite you in their fate. What you decide to participate in matters deeply to God, as I said. He is jealous for our worship and he will not ter- tolerate sharing our worship and love of his, with his covenant children with another parent or the love and devotion of his bride, the church, with a false lover. In the end, my hope is that we will heed 
Paul's warning to us. To love, to love others, to seek the good of others, but to flee idolatry at the same time. So let's walk through this passage together, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are your covenant people. We desire to be your children. We're thankful that you have made us your children. And we want to honor and worship you alone. God, there are so many things that we experience day to day that pull us away from worshiping you. And it's complicated. It's tricky. We need your help. Lord, we pray that this word this morning in 1 Corinthians and what you've put on my heart to share will will help us in those things, Lord. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Strengthen us where we need to be strengthened, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first principle that I found is pretty simple. Put distance between you and idolatry. In verse 14, and if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to have the passage before you. Chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So let's pause right there. This passage doesn't contain many commands from Paul. He mainly gives us things to think about, uses lots of rhetorical questions, but here we have a very clear command to run away from false worship. As we heard last week in verses 1 through 14, Paul cited to the Corinthians several examples from Israel's history. Israel was God's covenant people too. They had experienced his great acts of salvation and, and power, and they had received his religious practices and rituals, and they participated in them. But in verse 5 of chapter 10, he says, And yet, with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? Why was he not pleased with his people? Because they were pulled into idolatry, and as a result, they faced terrible consequences. Paul concludes that section saying, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He adds positively that no temptation is overtaking you, and God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure the temptation. And then his very next sentence is verse 14, the start of our passage. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. God will provide us the means we need to stay faithful to him. And one of those means is the ability to simply get away and avoid it. Avoid the temptation. He will give you the feet or the wheels you need to leave the situation. He will give you the means to close a tab on a computer, to shut off a phone, to make a statement or have a conversation that puts distance between you and the threat of idolatry. The first principle for how we should respond to temptations or invitations to engage in the worship of something other than God is to take it seriously and to put distance between yourself and the idolatry. Don't mess around with it. Now this could be physical distance, such as you know not physically being present for false worship. It could be relational distance, as in maintaining some relational boundaries and not being as relationally close with those who worship things other than God. But the point is, to not draw near, to flee, to put distance between you and the idolatry. Second principle, don't participate in over acts of worship with which you do not agree. So we're going to keep reading in verses 15 through 18. 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So in, these, in this passage, Paul uses that word participation or participate or partake six times. The Greek word used here can be translated as fellowship or commune or communion. It's where we get the name for communion. Paul is making a comparison between the Christian celebration of communion and what idol worshipers do when they come together to sacrifice food to an, to an idol and then eat that food together. It's a little hard to understand exactly what emphasis he is trying to make with this metaphor. He uses a lot of these rhetorical questions. It can be confusing. We gain clarity, though, at the end, verse 19 and 20, when he says, What do I imply, then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. When we take communion, we are fellowshipping with one another over the work of Christ and what it accomplished for us. In our case, the atonement of all sins, past, present, and future, on the basis of our faith in Christ alone. When Israel took part in the sacrifices on, on their altar, they were fellowshipping, communing, with one another over the work of the altar and what it represented for them. In their case, the atonement of only the sins committed since the last sacrifice, not any that would come later, and on the basis of their obedience to God's command. When pagans take part in sacrificing food to idols, they are fellowshipping with one another over what they believe the idols were doing for them, bringing good fortune, healing diseases, Except, the idols are not anything real of themselves. Paul states that they are actually the work of demons. Like he did in verses 1 through 13, Paul is still referencing this song of Moses. Moses' song from Deuteronomy 32. Um, It was Moses' final words to the people of Israel after leading them through the desert for 40 years. And he says this, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him, God, to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So though the idols are not anything, the worship of anything not God has always been and always will be the work of Satan and his demons. So it was okay for the Christians to eat the food that had been sacrificed to idols that they later purchased in the meat market because the food had been separated from the act of worship. It had been separated from the act of worship that the demons were trying to seduce the people into. And the demons didn't inhabit the food itself. But the demons absolutely were behind the worship of idols. Sitting down at an idol worship feast and eating the food 
that was ceremonially being offered to idols was absolutely participating in the work of demons. Paul concludes this thought in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. His point is that we should not engage in overt acts of worship that do not align with our faith in Christ. When we take communion and together we partake in the cup and bread, it speaks to the unity and fellowship we share with Jesus. It also unites us with one another. Paul does not want us to do that with demons, with something that is false. So this principle, which might be a bit more straightforward, or sound a little obvious, don't participate in overt acts of worship with which you do not agree, which do not align with your faith in Christ. It makes you a participant of the work of demons and unites you with false worshipers. Principle three, do not give to another that which rightly belongs to God. Let's look at verse 21 through 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What's that about? When Paul says that they cannot participate in both the Lord's Supper and the idol feast. He doesn't mean that it was physically impossible. Surely they could go and do both, and some likely were, right? I go and enjoy bread and wine with the Christians on Sunday, and then I'll go enjoy the meat and ale with the pagans on Thursday. Just like Israel feasted at the altar and then marched up into the mountains and worshipped the false idols in the mountains. Instead, Paul means that you cannot simultaneously proclaim that your hope and faith rests solely and wholly and completely in Christ, and yet also put a little bit of hope and faith in something else over here on the side. The two are mutually exclusive. It's like a spouse can't say in one breath, husband, wife, I love you with my whole heart and I will share it with you or share it with no other partner but then go and share it with another partner and still mean what they said to their spouse. You can't do that. You can't mean both things. So Paul, again, uses these rhetorical questions to make his point. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? No, we shouldn't. And no, we are not stronger. The Lord is a jealous God. And to some of you, that might seem like a really, really strange thing to consider. The Lord is jealous? I thought jealousy was something that we should avoid, right? Later in this letter, when Paul talks about what love is, one of the attributes is love is that it does not envy, or some translations say it's not jealous. So how can God be jealous and also loving? Let's let's explain that a little bit. God describes himself over and over as a jealous God. In Exodus 34, he says this. This is his own words. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Hivites, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, 
lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim poles. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. These are God's words spoken from his own mouth to Moses. And it is clear how this supports what Paul is writing in his letter. God calls himself a jealous God. He says his name is jealous. And he specifically says that attending the sacrificial meals with the pagan nations and eating their sacrifices is a sign of you breaking covenant with him and covenanting with them. And he connects this act with sexual unfaithfulness and calls this kind of idolatry whoring after their gods. Again, like the jealousy that a spouse would rightly feel when their spouse, who has covenanted with them, has gone and joined her or himself with another person. Why is it right for God to be jealous? God is right to be jealous for our worship because it rightfully belongs to him. As a maker of all people, indeed of all creation, it is our number one purpose to worship him. But especially as his own covenant people, the church which God calls the bride of Christ— who have chosen to unite themselves with him and declare our allegiance to him, God has a rightful claim to our undivided worship. And he is not pleased or amused or unbothered when we give our worship to someone or something else. Again, we have to carefully discern what our modern cultural equivalent is to covenanting with false gods by attending their sacrificial ceremonies. The third principle here is don't give to another that which rightfully belongs to God. Perhaps this principle might apply to receiving an offer to take a better paying job with a company that conflicts with your conscience because it has overtly connected its mission, values, or practices with something unholy or unjust. Or maybe they have just offered you, you know, just a great opportunity with lots of pay and perks. And perhaps because you're in a challenging season financially, the extra money would be really, really helpful. Maybe you can't foresee how you could actually survive the next few months without taking this job. You consider taking it. How does this principle speak into that? Well, can you take the job without putting your faith and hope, which rightfully belongs to God alone, in the financial benefits offered by this company? If you can, if you can work there without giving the company or the money, that worship that rightfully belongs to God, then it might be okay. But if you know you would be taking taking the job for the security of money and the security of career advancement because you are struggling to trust God, then maybe you shouldn't do it. And that would be true, again, for any job, really where it's a company that's unholy or, or not. Don't give to another that which rightfully belongs to God. Principle four, does it bless your neighbor? Verse 23 through 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We've talked about this one already back in chapter eight. 
Paul is reminding the Corinthians that just because something is morally or spiritually okay for them to do, it doesn't mean that they should. There's another principle to consider. Besides, is it lawful? Is it good for my neighbor? You might recall Craig's famous donut example, right? Bringing donuts to share at a Bible study. There's no law against donuts. Donuts are great. But if someone coming is struggling with a sugar addiction and donuts present a particular problem for him, then don't get the donuts and don't have everyone eat them in front of that person. Just get something else. So consider how your decision or action would bless your neighbor. It is good to do good to our neighbors. Sometimes it is, in, it is even good to put our religion to the side for the sake of truly loving our neighbors. Did that sound wrong? Jesus said it was okay to break the Sabbath in order to help your neighbor get his donkey out of a pit. Or if their child had fallen into a hole, are you going to not break the Sabbath in order to help them? He says, no, of course you would, you would help them. Jesus wasn't actually saying that it's okay to break God's laws for the sake of loving your neighbor. He was pointing out to the religious leaders at that time that you guys don't really even understand what the Sabbath is about. And, and if you did, you would see that loving your neighbor is, is in some ways an appropriate fulfillment of the Sabbath. My point is, we have to consider what is good for my neighbor. We can infer right here in verse 27 that one thing that is good for our unbelieving neighbors is to have some relational connection with Christians. It says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. This was one of the radical things Jesus did, right? Today, Jesus is lauded by basically everyone, Christians, non-Christians alike, for being a friend of sinners because he ate meals with them in their houses. Some misconstrue this, saying Jesus like hung out with sinners as if he just spent time with them, casually doing whatever they were doing without crushing the vibe in the room, you know? But that's not what the Bible shows us. Jesus did radically go into their homes and share meals with with sinners and tax collectors. But the result was people repenting of their sin and turning to follow him, or in the very least, being confronted about their sin. So principle number four, does it bless your neighbor It's an important one to consider, and there's actually a lot of nuance to that. It has to go along with principle number five. Does it hurt your neighbor? Verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. It's not clear who this someone is in this verse. Is it the pagan neighbor who is hosting the meal? Is it another Christian who's with you, who is bringing up the fact that the, uh, the food had been offered to idols? Either way, Paul's point is that we should not unnecessarily hurt or offend other people for the sake of our conscience or for the sake of trying to follow these rules. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
If our participation in something might hinder or disadvantage someone from putting their faith and hope in Christ alone and be saved, we should pause and consider if it is right. Again, this might seem obvious, but the situations that we find ourselves in can be tricky. So, here's a modern example that many Christians wrestle with. You get an invitation to an illegitimate wedding ceremony. Should you attend? There are several things that could make a wedding illegitimate. Not being between one man and one woman, as God prescribed. A wedding that involves a person who is not biblically free to marry because they unfaithfully left their marriage. These are just a couple common situations. Should you attend the ceremony? Well, will it hinder the faith of someone there? Yeah, if, if you, it likely would if you as a known believer are simply celebrating and condoning something that God forbids and says will harm, if you can communicate through your participation that we can be our own God and decide what is right or wrong for ourselves, that would clearly hinder the faith of someone. But some argue there could be a way to attend such a ceremony but not participate. And there could be a way to communicate that you wholeheartedly disagree with what is going on here, but still attend in some way that conveys the unconditional love of Christ. So there are multiple principles to weigh. Let's run through some that I've outlined so far. Am I being tempted to idolatry and should I flee? Am I joining in the worship of something unholy? In what manner would I attend? And what degree am I participating? Am I standing up front? Am I standing in the back? Am I singing and applauding? Am I celebrating? Am I giving to someone else that which belongs solely to God? Such as maybe my fear of rejection, my fear of offending my friend or my family member and losing that relationship. Perhaps loyalty. Am I giving loyalty to these people that really belongs to God? The opportunities and invitations we have to participate in idolatry in our culture today, again, are not very clear. It takes very careful discernment. Principle six. Can you sincerely thank God for it? Verse 30. If I partake partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul makes a case that he shouldn't be denounced for eating food that had been previously offered to an idol because he knows it's not, um, because he knows it's not actually an idol and he knows that this food is a gift from the Lord and he can truly give thanks for it. So, our God is a God of culture and beauty, right? He created a magnificent world. He gave humankind senses and unique cognitive ability to experience it, enjoy it, cultivate it. He wants us to fill the world with art and music and good food and good stories and entertainment. All of it is intended to draw us into worship of God and thankfulness. When we experience a good meal, it is a gift from God and our right response is to turn and give him credit for it, to to eat to the glory of God, to drink to the glory of God, to read a good book to the glory of God. But our world has been corrupted by sin. No longer is everything helpful or good. So much has been bent and twisted. So I would suggest that we should ask ourselves, can I sincerely thank God for this thing before enjoying it? 
Perhaps you're invited to go with friends to a movie. The reviews are, are wonderful. People are talking about how good it is. But what from, you can tell from the previews or what usually comes from the director of this movie, there's likely going to be a lot of content that celebrates sin. You could maybe enter into this example, the Super Bowl halftime show, right? Do you think you can watch it and sincerely thank God for it at the end? Will you be able to say, thank you, Father. That was a good gift. Thank you. Or would you just rather not talk to him about it at all? Right? Okay, but there's other principles that can govern this kind of decision, right? Like a book. Like this book or this movie has some content that does not glorify God. But if I choose to participate in it, read it, watch it, I could maybe have a very meaningful conversation with my unbelieving friend about why this does not honor God and why it isn't right and how they should be mindful of that. Right? So there's, there's nuance to all these things. But my point in this last principle is, can I be thankful for it sincerely? All right. Let's bring a summary to all this. Paul ends this passage in, in really a larger theme he has been carrying for the last three chapters with this summary closing statement in verses, verse 31 through 11.1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Look, all these principles can be boiled down to glorify God and love your neighbor. Does that sound familiar, right? It's the great commandments that we recited earlier today, that we've been reciting for the last several weeks. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And everything we do, we should be aiming to glorify God and love our neighbor. Sounds really nice. It's really, really hard, isn't it? At least I find it to be hard. It's hard for me to like, just even love my own family well. Not because of who they are, though they're not perfect, but because of who I am. I find that I am selfish and seek my own preferences and comfort over my family all the time. And it's hard to glorify God in all things, not because of who he is and because he's not perfect and deserving of all of our worship, but because who we are. I find that I often aim to glorify myself and not God, seeking for people to give me glory and praise rather than God. So what do we do? Where do we find the motivation and means to avoid idolatry and worship God? What do we do when we fail in these things so spectacularly? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Back in chapter 9, Paul gave us some real-world examples of how he gave up his rights as a preacher of the gospel in order to avoid creating any barriers to people putting their faith in Christ. And Paul's model for doing that was Christ. How did Christ show love to others? How did Christ glorify God? Well, most impressively, he obeyed him even to the point of death on a cross. His devotion was complete. He did not share his worship and love with anyone but God. Not with the crowds, not with the rich and powerful, not with his followers, not with his own family. How did he show love for others? 
Most impressively, he made no use of his rights as the owner of all things, made no use of his infinite power, and allowed himself to be crucified for our sake. But Christ was perfect. I am not. What should I do when I fail? These principles feel like just a list of things that I can't do. Well, we can still imitate Paul. How did Paul respond when confronted with his inability to do the good that he desired to do? We read that in Romans 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we still look to Jesus, not for a model of what to imitate when we have sinned, because Jesus never sinned. But we look to Jesus because we could never make enough sacrifices for our own sins, even if we gave our own lives. We look to him as our Savior. In a moment, we're going to do this together through the meal of communion. We're going to look at the bread. We're going to break it. We're going to look at the cup and consider and remember that it is through Jesus' broken body and shed blood on our behalf that we are made righteous before God. And that is very good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I said before, it is our desire as your people to worship you wholly. Lord, forgive us when we fail to do this. Show us even now the ways that we have intertwined our hearts with deceptive, demonic, evil things going on in our culture. Help us to untangle those connections, that fellowship, that communion. Help us to flee, put distance between us and that idolatry. Lord, help us to navigate tricky situations when we desire to show love to people, but it feels like in showing love we're somehow sacrificing our devotion to you. Lord, we need your help. You are good to help us. You are good to help us. You're good to forgive us when we stumble. You're good to give us strength. And we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.